to those of you online who are still part of our Bethel Church. I have a little um, little confession to make this morning. Um, I used my auto start this morning. <laughs> and my seat heaters. And I went and got an Americano before coming. So it's all for you. It's the... Um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we are actually in between series. Uh, we just finished Encounters with Jesus last week, and uh, we're heading into, with fear and trepidation, the book of Isaiah, which is really a massive undertaking. It's a, it's a challenging book. Uh, it's challenging for me. Uh, it's something you can be praying for for me, just that uh, God would give me good study and understanding uh, this is a book I have not honestly spent a lot of time in, in terms of study or, or in teaching. So I'm going to be learning a lot uh, with you and just ask that uh, you be praying for me that I would study well and that God would reveal truth from his word to me so I can proclaim it to all of us. Um, so I'd ask for that. And uh, before we dive in here, um, uh, just to kind of let you know what we're doing this morning, I, sometimes in between series, I like to just... Uh, kind of pause and do a bit of a shepherding message and just take a look at a snapshot of, of where we are in the life of the church and what we're experiencing and then see what God's word uh, would say to us about that. And so that's my intention uh, this morning. So uh, if you would, let's just pray and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Father, uh, in the midst of a lot of darkness in our world, uh, whether it's um, injustice uh, throughout many communities on display for us, anger and hostility being shown, a very divisive uh, political time in our country, a uh, time of pandemic, and now fires. Uh, God, it's easy to look around and to just grieve all of these things and to feel the weight of the world and to feel like the darkness is winning. So it's wonderful to be able to come together with the people of God and to declare together the revelation of your word, of what you are doing. That last song we ask, we start with question and we end with declaration, you are worthy. Uh, for you have told us in your word that you've put an end to this through Christ, who has come as the punishment the propitiation for sin. That all of the unrest and the difficulty and the sinfulness of mankind will one day just be expunged from this earth and you will bring shalom and set everything to right and make it as it ought to be. And you are the only one who is worthy and able to do that. So it's good to remind ourselves of these things, yes and to long for that time and to be assured in the midst of unrest that you are still God and you have all this well in hand. Lord, I pray now as we turn to your word uh, that you would speak to us again by your Holy Spirit. May we be hungry and thirsty for the nourishment that is here. May we receive it well by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So yeah, if you would turn to... Um, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to be starting in verse 22. 
There's an expression in the business world, uh, oftentimes it's on a placard that you might see in a place of business, uh, and it goes like this. You can get our services cheap, fast, or good. And you can only pick two, but you can't have all three, right? Have you seen this before? I find this to be a very real truth uh, just in the world as it is. Uh, the reality is, if you want something good and cheap, uh, it's not going to be fast. Uh, if you want something fast and good, it's not going to be cheap. If you want something cheap and fast, it's not going to be any good. You can pick any two, but this is sort of the matrix that you're tethered to. And uh, I find it to be very true. I also find it to be a pretty good parallel for Christian community. Most people come to a church, they have a strong desire to have a rich, meaningful sense of Christian community, to belong to one another uh, closely, to have a deep connection. And uh, I would just tell you, that's a great desire, long for that. However, you can have that, cheap, fast, or good, pick your two. And uh, overall, what I find is that uh, oftentimes in the church, uh, People are not willing to pay the cost for the community that they desire. And that's what I want to confront us with this morning. As we look in the scriptures, we find that the gospel not only saves us from something, that is, it saves us from our sin and the punishment that we deserve, but it saves us to something. We're saved into the family of God. We are meant to give and receive Christian community one to another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think it's interesting, however, we find ourselves in sort of a cultural moment where people generally are feeling very lonely and isolated, and that's before COVID. This is interesting because we're maybe more connected now than ever through devices and platforms and digital forms of connection and whatever. We're more connected now, and yet we feel more disconnected maybe than ever before. This dynamic has been studied and written on extensively. One person who's done so is um, Sherry Turkle. Uh, she's written a couple of books, uh, Alone Together and Reclaiming Conversation. She's not a believer, she's but an excellent scholar and works for MIT, a School of Technology, to really study the social impacts of some of the technology that's being developed. And she's written on this, and one of the real shocking things that she writes about is that right now what's being developed are robots for human companionship, particularly for those who are living in assisted, assisted living situations. That's shocking that that's how short in community we actually are, that we would create robots to try to fill that need. I was introduced to a song here recently, and I've included it in your your notes. Again, it's not a Christian song, but it's a, just a commentary of culture. Um, the name of the band always eludes me. It's um, Jukebox the Ghost or something like that. Anyways, uh, the lyric of the song is, why is everybody singing about love and drinking too much? And then the chorus comes in, everybody's lonely. And it goes on and on from there. It's kind of a funny, bouncy tune. But it's an interesting commentary on the moment, uh, just the loneliness uh, that people feel isolatedness. And so I want to ask a little bit of a question. Why is this the case? Why do we find this? Um, 
This is by no means authoritative or exhaustive. It's just here's a few musings of Eric, three things that I think are contributing to this. The first, I would say, is the everywhereness that technology creates for us. Think about how much of your time is spent scanning all of the things that are happening all over the world in contrast to living well in the community that you're placed. And I think a lot of us kind of go around almost like toddlers where our heads are just filled up, heads too big for our body, so to speak. Our heads are sort of filled up with more knowledge and awareness of what's happening in, in the world all over the place. Many places we can do nothing about and we kind of live with that weight almost like we're ready to topple over instead of being grounded and based in the community we're in. I think that's one thing. I think a second thing is that we have an increasingly mobile culture. People move more now and move faster uh, than ever before. Um, people change over jobs faster than ever before. And I, I will tell you this, we're even guarded, those of us maybe who have been in a place for a long time. We've been here 18 years. It's longer than I've been anywhere in my entire life. I'm guarded about new people. You know, there are certain questions I ask. Military folks, I'm sorry, but I do, it's, a, it's something I think of. I ask, oh, military, how long are you here for? It's hard for me to embrace and, and engage. Um, or somebody who's new to the community, uh, I, I think naturally in my mind, I'm sure people did to us long ago. You know, why don't you buy a home, kill a bear, do some Alaskan things so I know you're going to stick around, survive a winter or two, then I'll think about approaching you. So we kind of hold people at bay because of this quick turnover. I think a third thing, so not only the everywhereness, the mobile culture, but thirdly, I think there is a growing self-centeredness in our culture uh, at large. And some of the things that are doing this, again, I think our technology, not that technology is all evil, but what it's allowing us to do is to create a very self-centered life, the I culture, everything about me, from Facebook and Instagram where I can focus on specifically what I want and who I want, or Pinterest where I can set my eyes to gaze upon exactly the things I like curating boards of my own affinity. Playlists can be specified. Entertainment is watched on demand. And not only are we curating a very prescribed life for ourselves, even these technologies are doing it for us. You notice in all of these things, suggested friends, suggested songs. Uh, your news feed is based upon what you search in your browser. Everything is continually being curated and narrowed down into the self as opposed to the community broadly. And then, of course, all of this has been made worse with COVID. Social distancing, quarantine, masks, hand sanitizer, canceled events, and the ominous Zoom call. I cannot wait until we don't have to do that anymore. I think Zoom is going to crash. Here's a little, here's a little uh, if you've got Zoom in your portfolio, I think there's a special time to ditch it. It's going to crash when this is all over, right? So the reality is I think people desire meaningful community, authentic relationships, more now than ever. And yet it seems that people are less willing to pay some of the real costs of community than ever. And that's what I think we're confronted with as we look at our passage in the book of Acts. Again, the gospel calls us, or not only saves us from something, our sin, but it, it saves us to something. That's Christian community. There's a high value, but a high cost. So open your Bibles to Acts 2. 
And let me just give you a little background there. Acts is written by Dr. Luke, also the author of the Gospel of Luke that bears his name. He is the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. The longer title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles, and I wish that all of our Bibles would retain that because that second part is helpful. It's the acts, not just randomly, but of the apostles. And what we get from this book is sort of a, a picture of not just the lives and actions of the apostles, but really the birth of the church and its spread and its, the, the spread of the gospel throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And we see all of this happening with the empowerments of the Holy Spirit who comes at Pentecost for those who had repented of sin and turned to Christ in saving faith. Uh, the book begins with really the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and sort of prepares uh, his followers for the coming Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit did show up at Pentecost, it wasn't a stealthy, quiet event. It was loud and flashy, and people began to speak in tongues, and observers were there trying to figure out what is going on. And when that question was essentially asked, here we find the Apostle Peter not only giving an answer, but a sermon, which is really wonderful to see the transformation in his life. One who just weeks earlier cowered at the question from a little girl as Jesus was being interrogated and denied knowing Christ. And now he is proclaiming to those who killed Christ who he really was. Uh, so with that, let's take a look at uh, Peter's message, uh, Luke 2, starting at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now we're going to skip down to verse 36. In between, Paul makes a really clear and strong case for showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Messiah. He really was the Messiah that they were looking for. But now we're going to see that after he makes this argument, uh, kind of the response. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This prom the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so the first thing I want to I kind of anchor this in is we see the gospel call. Peter proclaiming to this, this crowd who was responsible for the death of Christ and giving evidence that he was the Messiah they were looking for. And when they are convinced and realize, wait a minute, we killed God's Messiah, they ask a pretty good question. What should we do? The answer you almost expect is, well, you better repent for doing a naughty deed here. That was the wrong thing. But notice that the response from Peter is not just repent for this decision to kill this man, but rather repent from your sins in general. That's fascinating. Because this is a group of God-fearing Jews 
who worship the Lord regularly and go through the ritual motions and whatnot. And so this response, repent of sin, ought to shock us a little bit because what it shows us is that religion is not enough. That at the coming of Christ, now we have to respond in saving faith and repentance and faith to what Christ has done for us, he being the propitiation for our sins. Religion is not enough. And the thing that this passage makes very clear is that salvation begins with repentance, not with religion. And that's what these God-fearing Jews need. Repentance has two aspects to it. There is a turning away from sin, and there's a turning towards Christ into following him. And that's genuine repentance. Many people will express a certain level of contrition to sin, but they never turn all the way about face and begin to follow Jesus. And that is short of true confession, true repentance. I think the picture of repentance that is so clear is what we actually see in baptism as a person willingly submits themselves to being lowered into the water, symbolizing the cleansing of what Christ has already done for us and being raised up to new life. There's a turning away from sin and a turning towards Christ, even in that, that act. And so through repentance, we're trusting Christ as our Savior, and we receive not only new standing with God, that is, we're justified, declared righteous, but God imparts to us an amazing gift, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. So repent from sin, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. He indwells us, and I can't stress this strongly enough. The Holy Spirit is an incredible power, empowerment for all that God has asked us to do. I think some Christians have lived so long as followers of Christ that they forget what life was like without the Holy Spirit in their life. Just some of the things that the Holy Spirit does, he seals us in the family of God. He empowers us for a life of obedience, obedience we could not do on our own beforehand. He illuminates the scriptures to us so that when we open the scriptures, God the Holy Spirit is making them clear and more than that, pressing them down into our heart as a matter of conviction. And he bears witness to us that we are his, that we belong to him. And the reason I want to start with this, this first part about the gospel call and what it demands of us is because authentic Christian community is the result of first being called by the gospel and radically changed by it. You can't just walk into a church and, and not have a saving faith, a saving knowledge of Jesus and say, I really want that strong community. I don't mean to be unkind, but you're always going to be on the outside looking in because you don't have the Holy Spirit in common. Christian community is the result, a byproduct of first responding to the gospel. So then we see the gospel impact kind of laid out here. Look at verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This phrase at the very end uh, is incredibly interesting to me. It doesn't just say that, oh, 3,000 were saved and then just went on their merry way. It says 3,000 were saved and added to their number. In other words, a community of faith is being formed. The church is birthed 
and they are being called and collected together. In a word, we might say that the gospel changes relationships. Uh, and I'm going to look Catholic here for just a moment. Uh, it changes our relationships vertically, and it changes our relationships horizontally, our relationship with God and our relationship with mankind. The first aspect is it changes our vertical dimension. There's a vertical dimension to our faith. We no longer live under God's wrath. We did before. That's the default position of mankind is deserving God's wrath because of our rebellion. But it, with faith, our vertical dimension has changed. God no longer looks at us as enemies, but as friends. He no longer sees us as sinners, but he sees in us the righteousness of Christ, which has been transferred to us. We're adopted into his family. We're made as sons and daughters. We become citizens of his kingdom. We become living stones of his temple on earth, which he is building up. We're told that he is the vine and we're the branches and that we have this vital union and connection with him. There is real change in our vertical relationship to God. We were once far off and now brought near. But there is a change horizontally as well, and that is our relationships to mankind. We become a community of faith, members of one body, members of one another, interdependent upon each other as the family of God. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. I was at a, re a restaurant just this last weekend, which feels like a confession in its own right, but I was. And I had this uh, particular fellow serving me, and let's just say it was going poorly uh, for him and for me and for most folks that were, he was serving and he knew it, and we knew it, and, you know, there's sort of that feel in the air. And kind of to try to mitigate that, he kept saying, I'll be right with you, brother. I'll bring your drink in just a second, brother. You know, and he just, I don't know, probably 10 times he called me brother. And I wanted to say, quit calling me brother. Just do, you know, if you want to be close, just do what I'm expecting of you. But also just the term brother, and I know what he was trying to do. He's trying to create a sense of connection there. I'm like, you're, you're not my brother, like my brothers in Christ like my sisters in Christ. You can use the phrase to try to engender some sort of form of connection. But I am brothers, I have brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that connection cannot be matched by a well-meaning server here who does not share my faith and doesn't even know my name. The gospel, its impact both vertically and horizontally is so integrated together that the Apostle John says essentially they're inseparable. In 1 John 4, listen to what he says. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this is the gospel impact. It not only changes our spiritual situation with God, our vertical, but it changes our horizontal. But now we're going to see this. While the gospel is freely given, it does begin to make demands on our life. It has costs. It has implications. It demands all of our life. And so here we're going to see the gospel community cost. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders 
and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of Christian community in the New Testament, this snapshot right here. And, and I don't think I'm out of bounds in saying it's something that we all desire and long for and wish we were a part of. I also think it's interesting to note here uh, the size of the church that achieved this. How many people were in attendance at this church? 3,000, it says, the Church of Jerusalem. It was a mega church in a metropolis. When we think of Christian community, I think we're inclined to go, boy, really true, robust community happens in a small rural church of 50 people who have spent decades together. That might be what we think, but we actually find one of the sweetest pictures of Christian community right here in this very large church. I'm not saying a church has to be a certain size. I think we all probably have a preference, but I think it's important not to moralize our preferences. What God is after is healthy churches who are committed to his word and to himself and to each other, people who are radically changed by the gospel. But I want to look at what this beautiful picture of community cost, because it costs some commitments here. Uh, actually, when I was at Biola um, University many moons ago now, uh, I had a chance of listening to Elizabeth Elliot speak in a chapel service. And I can still remember the outline to her message today. She says, what do you want more than anything else? What are you going to do to get it? And what will it cost you? I thought, that's a great outline. You could preach that almost anywhere at any time. Uh, and I think it's important to look at that last question. What's it going to cost? What did this Christian community cost the disciples? First of all, we see they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Or John Stott has said this, they became a learning church. The gospel had changed the seat of authority in their life. They came together and they listened to the apostles teach. We have their teachings now bound together in the New Testament. If we're going to experience rich Christian community, we're going to have to commit ourselves to the teachings of Christ, which are forming us into the likeness of Christ, that together we will wholly be like Christ, because not one of us is going to be completely like it, him or herself. So they were hungry to receive instruction. John Stott has also said, any intellectualism and fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, I don't need books, I don't need learning, I don't need seminary, I don't need college, I don't need fancy studies and whatnot. I got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and he will bear out the truth that these other things may instruct. They are anti-intellectualism, and the Holy Spirit are mutually opposed. The question I have for you is, is the word of God an authority in your life? Is it something you're devoted to? On one level, you're probably looking back at me going, oh, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> I'm listening. You're supposed to be giving us the apostles' teaching here, so you've got that going for you. But I will say this. I can't compete in my preaching 
with your personal study and discovery and your time with God and his word. I really can't. I can proclaim the truths that are there, but it pales in comparison to when you sit down with God's word and the Holy Spirit who resides within you illuminates the truth and brings it to bear upon your conscience in your life. And you have that moment of discovery with God himself. I can't compete with that. And so I would urge you towards it. What is your Bible reading plan? How are you taking God's word into your life and nourishing yourself? Uh, if you don't have a plan, again, that's a plan to fail, right? Same thing with your budget. If you don't have a budget, I know financially you're not doing too well. If you don't plan your meals for the week or weeks to come, I know you got a lot of leftovers in your fridge and you're spending way too much money eating out. If you don't have a fitness plan, I probably won't go there just now, but <laughs> what we don't plan to do, we simply don't do. If you don't have a plan to take God's word into your life and nourish yourself on his word, you're going to fail. And hearing it preached is not enough. Hearing God's word and being committed to it and devoted to it is fundamental to Christian community because by his word being proclaimed to all of us together, we are being formed into the person and likeness of Christ. They were devoted to fellowship. This is a sharp stick and poke in the eye, I think, for Christians today. I think few churches, few folks in church are committed, devoted to fellowship. They want it, they're willing to have it, especially if they're invited. But few are often to say, I'll have you over for dinner. I'll make the meal. I'll ask the questions. I think there's a real mindset in the body of Christ today that people show up as customers. I'm looking for a good church. I want to know what you have for my children. By the way, what music do you do? Do you do the brand that I like? Uh, what, what version of the Bible do you preach from? Because I have a preference. And instead... Too few people walk into a church and say, by God's grace, I'm called to be a part of the family of God, which means I have gifts that I'm supposed to share in service to the body of Christ. How can you use me? Where do I need to plug in? What do I need to do? How can I be a part of giving to the fellowship, not just receiving goods and services as a consumer? I think too many people today refer to the church as though it were other people, like it's the pastors, it's the elders, it's leadership, the membership, the long-termers. And the real shocking and terrifying announcement for some of you is this. If you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ in saving faith, you're the church. And your disappointments with the church rise and fall in your own lap, so to speak, too. Instead of asking, why doesn't the church at least turn the question into, why don't we myself included, the church. You notice that these folks didn't just attend together or sit next to one another or happen to know each other's names. We're told they were devoted to one another. What does it look like to be devoted to one another? We get a beautiful picture of it. They were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions in order to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day, it says. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm just going to comment on one of these things that stings for me. They sold property and possession in order to give. Ouch. I have stuff. God's been gracious to give me things. We've worked hard for things. We have them. I'm even willing to share. I'm happy to loan to you something. If you would please return it (laughs) in, in as good a condition as I lent it to you, right? Am I willing to part with what I have and simply give it to you because you have need? I don't like that. I'll be really honest. That is an area that God is working upon me, not to hold my own possessions, but to see them as his and to be willing to part with them for your good or for someone else's. I also think it's important to recognize this passage isn't renouncing all ownership. After all, where did they meet? In their homes. So it seems that they held something, but we need to hold our things lightly and be willing to share. What we find in this passage is that their concern for one another outweighed their drive for personal gain. And that is a sharp rebuke to our culture today and for me personally. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. I like bread. I can go with this one. I'd love to come over to your house and have some bread. Um, Simply sharing a meal, practicing hospitality. My friends have people in your home. COVID has locked us down and produced quarantine and Zoom meetings and distancing and all kinds of things. And what's difficult to do right now is large gatherings, large public gatherings. That's the tough thing, right? You still have a home. You have a place and you have features that you can share with people, and I am particularly convicted too that our culture, our day and age, our homes are better equipped now for hospitality than maybe ever in history, and yet we probably do it less. The early church did not have running water, Wi Fi, cars, grocery stores, but what we have, all these things that we have, and somehow we struggle to do real community and hospitality. There's a difference between hospitality and entertainment. Martha Stewart wants you to entertain. The Bible wants you to practice hospitality, which is simply making room for others. It's just making room. It can be on paper plates and disposable cups. I do believe with all my heart that if the church would become better at practicing hospitality and being devoted to one another in a radical way, that the world would take notice and it would produce a radical communication of the gospel. Leslie Newbigin has said this. He's a missiologist. He said that the local congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. In other words, it's how people understand it. It's an articulation of the gospel as they see it lived out in everyday life. Francis Schaeffer said something similar. The observable love of believers one for another is the final apologetic of the gospel. It shows it to be true. It verifies that the gospel is true enough to actually change people's lives and the way they live with one another. And the end of our passage bears this out because we find the remarkable statement, and the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. The world took notice of this Christian community. 
The last bit of cost here that we see was that they were devoted to prayer. And I'm so glad this is here because otherwise we would turn this into a recipe or a technique. Do these three things and this will happen. But in fact, all of this is in response and carried out in a, in a level of trust in the Lord, in his work, coming before the Lord regularly in prayer. They were reliant upon God. They were seeking God, seeking his face and his glory. I need to end here. The last thing we see is just that the gospel community is pictured. And I want to read the verses again in verse 44 to 47. All the believers were together and they held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. If the world saw today in us true Christian community, they would know that the gospel is true. They would believe it and they'd want to be a part of it. Uh, oftentimes, one of the one of the comments or laments that I hear from people the most and the one that stings so badly is this. I feel disconnected. I will just tell you, I hate hearing that. I hate it. Um, Partly because of what this person is missing and probably because of what they're missing out on giving as well. And my truthful and loving response to you, if that's what you're feeling, is this Christian community is not optional. It is a byproduct of the gospel impact on your life. You're not just saved from sin. You're saved to the community of faith, which means you need to put into it. There is absolutely a cost to community. It doesn't come freely. And if you're looking, if simply sitting back and waiting for someone to offer it to you, it won't happen. Christian community is something you participate in cultivating. I want to close with this quote from Tim Chester in his book, Total Church, which I've listed in your notes. And he gives us, I think, a really good picture of what I've been trying to say all day here. (laughs) The church, then, is not something additional or optional. It's at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven. This is where the world can see what it means to be truly human. That's what God is doing in the world. That's what he's doing with us. If you want that Christian community pictured here, then we all have some costs to put into it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is timeless, that we are reminded of what you have um, done for us by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have saved us from our sin, but you've also saved us into the family of God. The impact of this, this gospel then, Lord, is that our relationship with you is changed and our relationship with our fellow mankind is changed. As you build this community in us, may we participate, Lord, with the costly things being devoted to one another and the sacrifices that come there. We do long to be a community of Christ on display 
for God and for his glory and that the gospel might go forward. To that end, Lord, help us. Help us to be a picture of the love and the grace of Christ as we grow together as a church family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.